I wouldn't be a very cultured and, or I guess I could say I wouldn't be a very culturally relevant preacher if I didn't begin at least one sermon every now and then referencing popular song lyrics. Isaiah 53 is one of the most popular songs that has ever been written. And it's one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. Because in Isaiah 53, or in that song that is contained there, it actually begins in chapter 52, verse 13. It's called one of the servant songs of Isaiah. And in that song, we have an explanation, uh, not only about the the life and sufferings and death and resurrection of the Messiah, but that song also gives us a lot of the theology behind those events that make up the the centerpiece of the message of the gospel. The, The preaching of the gospel always includes a reference to those historical activities of the man Jesus But there's also the theological content or the meaning behind those events that must be preached. Why did any of this happen? Isaiah tells us. It gives us that kind of information. And the astonishing thing about it, I think one of the things that make that song one of the most important songs that's ever been written is because he does it somewhere between six and 700 years before the birth of the man Jesus of Nazareth. He he lays it out. Here's what's going to happen. Here's the theology behind what's going to happen. And then it happens hundreds of years later. And the only explanation we have is that that the, the original author of the song was God Himself. Now, you don't have to turn there. I just want you to think about this, this song and what we know of it. If you ever pay attention to that song, it presents facts presents doctrine in such a way that almost totters back and forth between what would be the external human perception of things and then the spiritual reality, the internal spiritual theological reality behind those things, those external events. Now if we, if we tried to pull the song apart... If we extracted only that which was seen from a human perspective, we would have phrases like this. My servant was marred beyond human semblance. He grew up like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their faces. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced, he was crushed, there was chastisement upon him, he was oppressed, he was afflicted. His grave was with the wicked, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressors. That's one side of of this song. But there's also phrases like, My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. He done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. If I I read those back to back in separate pieces like that, it sounds like we're talking about two different people. Two, two completely different scenarios. And it's the extremities of this song. When, when we read it like this, if we, if we could possibly think like carnal men, we understand why chapter 53 begins with the question, who has believed what he's heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, how few there are who have come under the mighty power of God and been able to comprehend these extremes. Of course, with the eye of faith, having been given sight by that strong arm of the Lord, we come and we... It's difficult for us to even divide these two pictures apart in this song... 
But our eyes are drawn to phrases like, He shall sprinkle many nations. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And He shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Our eyes through faith are drawn to that the spiritual realities. The theology behind the song that brings these two parts together and we can see how this works and is fulfilled in the man Christ Jesus. With that little exercise, hopefully a clear point is made. What the Bible teaches about the person and work of Jesus Christ, apart from the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, remains an utter mystery to fallen men. They can't make sense of it. As a matter of fact, Paul would say to them, it's just foolishness. It's folly. They can't wrap their minds around it. They can't bring themselves to receive it and put these two pieces together. And that's exactly what we saw last week in verse 18 of this chapter. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Two completely different things. Utter foolishness and then power unto salvation. Two different groups of people, two different applications and uses. Same message, the word of the cross. And we noted that the preaching of the cross is what divides the human race. That is a fact. The preaching of the cross divides the human race. It's been happening from the very beginning. It happens still today. The preaching of general life betterment principles apart from the cross doesn't divide the human race. There's one message that cuts the race in half, but, but just general good positive life application principles, that doesn't divide anybody. If you, a, a message promoting just generally a better marriage or better finances... Well, that doesn't divide anybody. Even, even so-called biblical messages that promote the, uh, uh, an understanding of the mysteries of biblical prophecy. That doesn't divide anybody. A message that tries to explain different personality types or, or assign love languages to people. That doesn't divide anybody. Because even lost people are interested in all of those things. But when you preach the message of the incarnate God hanging on a cross in order to reconcile our estranged race back to an offended God, well, that starts to divide people. Why is this God offended? Because of your sin. Your sin has offended God, and the only way to make things right is for the Son of God to take on flesh and to suffer in your place. That's the only thing that can make it better. Your sin is the problem. So the cross of Christ divides people. It's really a reminder that that your marriage suffers because you're a selfish sinner. That's why your marriage suffers. Your, Your finances suffer because... Either one, you're lazy, or two, you're trying to build a kingdom that is in competition with God's kingdom, or maybe both. But your finances are going to suffer. Biblical prophecy terminates in the revelation of this Jesus of Nazareth, the only uh, mediator between God and men. That's the point. You're estranged from God. God. God sent a mediator. Personality types, that's just pop psychology rooted in atheism in an anti-biblical worldview designed to make people feel good about being self-centered. Well, I'm just this type of person. No, you're just a selfish sinner. Love language. Just, just selfishness, using selfishness as leverage to be more selfish. Well, if you're going to love me, I need you to do it this way. That, and that's the way I'll take my love. Thank you. 
the cross, the cross says sin, 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 sin. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. The only way to be reconciled to God is by the incarnate God-man hanging on the cross, bleeding and dying, giving His life to pacify an incensed God for your selfish sinfulness, your idolatry. That's divisive. Even amongst people who profess to be Christians, that's a divisive message. And that's what Paul's been saying. This, this message that we've been given to preach and that, that unites us around the cross of Christ, it's not a message that we get to grab onto and then use it to lift ourselves up above one another. No, this message takes all of our legs out from underneath us. It humbles us. That's what we've been seeing. Now we're going to move into verses 19 to 21. Having sort of seen the background of all that Paul is saying, we just... Now the work is just walking through his argumentation. How does he go about pressing this point? So let me read verses 19 to 21 again. He says, For it is written, that word for lets you know he's still arguing, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So I've divided these three verses into three headings. Number one, God's promise. Number two, God's protest. And number three, God's purpose. Again, Paul's just he's, he's pressing the point. So number one, God's promise. And a little bit of this will be review, as we've already seen in verse 19. Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah to show that what he's saying is not new. Rather, what he's saying is really just directly in line with what God had promised to do long ago. It's in direct fulfillment of the promise of God. Now, you might read this and call it a threat. Depending on your angle, it's a promise or it's a threat. Threat begins with TH, and that would have ruined my alliteration. So I'm calling it a promise, and I think for the people of God, it is a promise. It, it is, we are glad. I'm glad God has thwarted my wisdom. For us, it's a promise, but it's also a threat, and it's fulfilled, Paul says. He begins with that formula, for it is written. For it is written. When he uses this formula, we know that Paul is making reference to prior revelation. He's pointing back to what God had said in the past. This would be like us saying, because the Bible says, the Scriptures say, the Word of God says, well, you know, in this or that book of the Bible, it says this. That's, why, that's what it means. For it is written. And this has to be the foundation of all thinking, all of our acting, all of our decision-making in this life, all of our belief must be rooted in this, for it is written. All of our instruction to other people, they ask counsel. It should take this form, for it is written. Well, you know, the Bible says this. This, this is our bedrock. Apart from this, we have no bedrock. We're on sinking sand. I'm, we do this... For it is written. That's our explanation. What, what, what will you do tomorrow when you get up out of bed? You should be able to say, I'm going to do this, for it is written. What your children do tomorrow, you should, be, you should be able to say, my children are now going to do this. I'm going to prescribe this for them. For it is written. And then you go about your... And, and if you do that, You've got a solid foundation, a firm foundation and bedrock for everything you do. And Paul knows. He's, he's writing to a church. He's writing to Christians who would, would, their ears, just like ours, ought to perk up. When we hear it is written, okay, this settles the argument. This settles the discussion once we hear this. For it is written. And then he quotes from Isaiah 29, 14 from his, his Greek Bible, describing something that God said He will do. And there are, there are two... Verb clauses, we could call it that. God says, I will destroy. And then at the end, I will thwart. 
To destroy means to cause to perish. I will destroy. I will cause to perish. I will do away with something. And then the word thwart means to reject or to regard or, or as invalid or render ineffective. God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So God in this passage says that He's going to take that in which wise men boast, their wisdom, He's going to make it perish as if it were not at all. He's going to take the so-called discernment of men, discerning men, even the best, and render it utterly ineffective, useless, and invalid. Paul is saying that God said that. That's what's happening here. The meaning then is that what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth is just what God said He would do. Human wisdom and human discernment, even of the wisest, even of the most discerning, will be brought to nothing. And again, in the context here, all of that comes in the in the, 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 the context of the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the cross. Now to restate what we saw several weeks ago as sort of a reminder, you don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah it sounds like this, I will do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Now in Isaiah's day, there is the threat of Assyrian invasion and the Israelites, some of them have got a great idea to avoid trouble. We'll just go back to Egypt. Now if you've been reading, if you've read your Bible, if you've gotten through the Exodus, you should, you should probably think going back to Egypt is not a good idea. But that's what they thought. God had warned them, don't go back to Egypt. Just trust me. But in their unaided, natural, human wisdom, they could not understand, they couldn't imagine any other way of safety than Egypt. Knowing all that they knew, the, the, the written scriptures, the oral traditions that they had, the stories, the songs about the Exodus, they hear all of that, the serious coming, and then they think, you know what? Pharaoh, it did take him a long time to let us go. I mean, maybe there is safety there. He was very protective of us. Utter foolishness. But that was, in their thinking, that was the best they could come up with. That, that's the picture that's happening in Isaiah. Human wisdom cannot look above man. Human wisdom can't see above the heads of other men. Human wisdom cannot, because it will not, look up to see God. It won't. Human wisdom centers on man. Human wisdom is always asking, how can we as men exalt ourselves or better ourselves as men? And so God says, well, I'm, I'm going to do wonderful things, wonder upon wonder, a word that is very often used to describe the mighty deliverances of God as He delivers His people. And here it refers to something that's going to set them in astonishment. God's going to do a work such as only God can do. This is what we saw. Man is asking, man's immediate recourse is, what can we do as men to better ourselves as man? And God says, okay, well, I'm going to do something as God that only God can do to exalt me. That's the picture in Isaiah. And this work is going to cause all human wisdom to vanish. Everything that men have have striven after and, and built is, is going to melt before them. Everything that they trust in is going to crumble. Edward Young commenting on that passage in Isaiah says, The wondrous work of the Lord was to bring the people into such a condition that all confidence in human wisdom would be demonstrated as foolishness. Now I summarized the point several weeks ago by saying this, that God is saying there's going to come a time when I'm going to do something so outrageously astonishing that it's going to render all human wisdom and all human discernment completely void. How does Paul 
read that. Paul's got Isaiah. Paul doesn't have 1 Corinthians. At this point, Paul has 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. He's, he's, he's dictating to Sosthenes. How does Paul reach back into prior revelation and, and what, what is the lens that he uses to interpret it? Well, I, the lens he explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says, For all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. The, the ultimate fulfillment of everything God has ever said He was going to do finds its, its uh, termination in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What God had promised or threatened to do had its ultimate fulfillment in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So for Paul, you know, he's living after the resurrection. So for Paul, Christ, the promised Messiah, has come. The fulfillment of the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 has come. The reason for God's calling of Abram and choosing Israel, He's come. All of the providential work of God throughout history in the nation of Israel, all that it was funneling to, He has come. He's finished His work. It reached its climax or its pinnacle in the person and work of Christ. And so... In the person and work of Christ, God ultimately fulfills that promised threat of Isaiah 29, 14. In other words, it's in the person and work of Christ that all men are set in astonishment. It's in a true understanding of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He's done that causes all human wisdom to vanish. People who've not looked and seen, well, they still think they're wise. But what Christ has done shows that in thinking they are wise, they're really just foolish. And those who have looked and seen will also say, man, all my wisdom was foolishness. I've got nothing. Understanding what Christ has done brings everything that men have built to nothing. It shows that everything that they trust in is going to crumble. Imagine a group of children. They get up early in the morning and there's snow on the ground and so they run outside to build a snowman and they're working and they're, they're sweating. They're having to take jackets off because they're so hot and their toboggans are in the snow. They're working hard to get the snowman built and about 11 o'clock the sun reaches almost its peak and all of a sudden you, water begins to drip and by 2 o'clock it's in a puddle of water in the yard and you just see you know, some gloves and maybe a carrot and a few sticks laying on the ground. Or maybe they've been on the beach and they've worked really hard to build a sandcastle. And then the first wave comes in from the, the incoming tide and the whole thing is just obliterated, turned to mush. Barely looks like a mound. Imagine the, both of these groups of children. They just stand broken hearted, astonished. What, what if we... Uh, you can't make sense of it. Our, our work, it was nothing. It was a waste. We, it's all gone. That's the picture that God says, this is what I'm going to do. Mankind is left in gaping, earth-shattering bewilderment at the salvation of God in and through Jesus Christ. You either see it now or you see it on the judgment day, but every mouth will be stopped and we'll recognize and we'll, we will say all that we worked for is nothing if not for Him. Now, if the shadow, thinking and comparing Isaiah's day with Paul's day, if the shadow of this kind of a work of God was meant to exhibit the foolishness of men in Isaiah's day, well, how much more does the reality of it in Christ just utterly nullify all human wisdom in Paul's day and in our day? The, the, the antitype has come. The fullness has come. The true judgment salvation has come in Christ Jesus. He was literally publicly portrayed as crucified before the eyes of men. Then in the preaching of the gospel, he's publicly portrayed as crucified, the only way of salvation for sinners. The saints in Corinth had experienced that power. They were born again through the preaching of the gospel. Paul could say to them, just like he said to the Galatians, he could say, hey, listen, it was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So tell me, how did you receive the Spirit? By works? You, were, you, you did enough? Or was it by hearing with faith? You heard the gospel proclaimed and you were changed. If it was foolish in Isaiah's day, how much more foolish is it now 
that Christ has actually lived and died and displayed the salvation of God. The Corinthians knew the flesh-withering power of the preaching of the cross. Some of us here, you're Christians, you know the flesh-withering power of the cross. So then, for the saints in Corinth, for them to regress back into exalting the wisdom of men, that doesn't make any sense. That's completely incongruous with all that they know and all they have experienced through Christ. This was actually more foolish than for the Israelites to go back to Egypt. That was just a fleshly type. Going back to the place of your bondage, that doesn't make any sense. We would say, that sounds like the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. No, what's more ridiculous than that is for people who have experienced the saving power of the gospel to resort back to man's wisdom, to resort back to the sins that have held us in bondage. That's more foolish. Paul says that this doesn't make any sense. If we put this back together with verse 18, Paul says that this dividing up of the human race through the preaching of the cross is in exact accord with what God said He would do. And then back to verse 17, the preaching of the cross was never to be done in a way that would rob it of that power, that power to cut the human race in half, the power to both judge and save. Don't preach in any way. Paul says, I don't want to preach in any way that robs it of any of that power. And that power is according to God's promise. He said He would do this. Now, if you're here and you still consider the message of the cross as foolishness or preaching as foolishness, this thing here, you, you sit and listen, the man gets up and talks for too long, and you're just, you, you say, this is foolish, this is silly. Or maybe you wouldn't say that, but you're thinking, I, I, don't, I don't see what's happening here. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand my, my mind is immediately elsewhere. As soon as the room gets quiet, my mind is gone. I don't, I'm not benefiting from this. I don't understand it. If that is you, or, or maybe you wouldn't say all of that, but you still reject the lifestyle that's patterned after the cross, the way of the cross, the way of suffering. You say, I'm, I'm not into that. I reject that. That just sounds silly to me. That, that is no way to get ahead in the world. If that's you, the only logical explanation for any of that is that you simply refuse to believe the promises of God. Again, you might say, it just seems foolish to me. I I, I can't get there from here. Okay, that's correct. That is what God said would happen. So then you are a living, breathing, walking, talking testimony to the proof of the promises of God, the validity of the promises of God, that He does do exactly what He says He's going to do, and yet you won't believe. You won't submit to Him. It's because you refuse to believe. Now, having seen what we just saw, you could say, yeah, but wait a second, you just said that all of that is because God said He was going to do it. And if this is simply what God said He was going to do, how can I still be responsible? And again, I would say, well, you just affirm that you believe what God said is true and yet you still refuse to submit to Him. You can't use the truth of God's Word as leverage, as as the reason why you refuse to believe God's Word. And remember, the word of the cross is set against the word of wisdom. If that's your thinking, you're still settled into that word of wisdom mindset, the thinking of the world. And man's so-called wisdom, we would call it foolishness, man's wisdom is not just simple ignorance. Don't, Don't hear any of this and think, well, God made it so that people who don't really understand are going to go to hell. No. Man's man's so-called wisdom is a pursuit. It is man's arduous labor in the direction of self-promotion. Man's wisdom is a militation against God. 
You're militating against the simple truth of God's Word. You refuse to believe. Don't hear any of this and say, well, I, I guess I just don't understand. Because that's not the truth. It's not that hard to understand. It's a supernatural work of God. Now, in addition to that, you have to keep in mind there is a serious penalty for unbelief. John 3.18 says, Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you don't believe, if you find that all of this is foolishness, well, it's because you refuse to believe. And if you refuse to believe, you are rejecting the Son of God. You have heard, you have seen with the ears Christ publicly portrayed as crucified, and you say, no, thank you. No, thank you. I'll try something else. I'll, I'm going to go this way. And the penalty for that is condemnation. You've rejected the Son of God. Now, you might hear that and say, well, listen, I, I want to believe. I hear what you're saying about the penalty, and it makes perfect sense that this would be um, very incriminating. I see that it is a, a, a heinous transgression against God. All of that makes sense. But I just find that my own heart is it, its just like it's hard. It's like a rock. It's impenetrable. I just can't get myself to where you're trying to take me. And if that's you, I would say that remember that there is a prayer in the Gospels that goes like this. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Now, again... The man in the story, in the gospel, doesn't say, Lord, I believe. Help me to understand the facts a little better. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Lord, I believe. Help me to connect the dots here because there's some things I'm, I'm really confused about. No. When he says, help my unbelief, he is confessing. Help my not believing. I believe, but I have unbelief. Help my not believing. Pray that prayer if, if you're in that condition. And understand that none of us have the power of faith in ourselves. Not one of us. None of us ever believed before the power of God came and delivered us from unbelief. God alone is our refuge and strength. Even from the sin of unbelief. So, so go to Him. If you say, I hear it, I, I, I'm just struggling. Then go to Him and make Him your refuge for even the sin of unbelief. And cry out to Him. Proverbs 27, 7, we studied this this week at home. It says, One who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. I would encourage you to labor to see your desperate condition before God as, as, as an unbeliever, as one who has rejected the very Son of God. And when God brings that revelation, when He shows you how destitute you are, even this, this bitter message of the cross, all of a sudden it becomes sweet. Sweet to the taste. Like candy. Like honey on the lips. Give me more. Give me more. Give me more. I need it. What once was bitter, what once I had no taste for, now I see. Go to God. Why? Because God's promises are true. If you're, if you're in unbelief, God's promises are true. If you know God, God's promises are true. It's all a testimony to His promise. Number two, we see here God's protest. God's protest. By protest, I mean a call to prove something. A call to prove the truth. God speaking through the apostle calls the Corinthians to prove by their own experience the reality of the truth of what has been said in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, the wise man obviously is a man known for his wisdom, his insight. Probably a little bit of intellect in there as well. A scribe would have been akin to a scholar, an expert in some field of study. 
A debater is a man trained in disputes and argumentation and, and haggling on various subjects. He he's probably knows the, the, the rules of logic and all of that. And all of these come under that qualifier of this age, of this present earthly system. In other words, here God is issuing a challenge to all the learned experts in, the, in, the, in this worldly way of thinking, the present worldly wisdom. He's issuing a, a challenge to them. Now it's obviously a rhetorical device. He expects no response because there's no response that can be given. And so then he follows that with, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That is the, the so-called wisdom of the world. So here's the picture. God, through the Apostle Paul, you can imagine, and He stands center ring, or the center of the octagon, if you will. He's triumphed over every enemy, every contender. He's utterly confounded all human wisdom, all intellect, All of man's insights, all of man's expertise, all of man's reasoning, the very best we have, all of it it is, is laying in a puddle on the mat before God. The Corinthians should know this. Paul knows this. God has set it forth. And so then you can imagine, he grabs the microphone and he issues his protest. Where are your wise men now? Where are your scribes? Where are your debaters? Where are the smartest and most seasoned? Where are your experts? Where are the intellects? Where are the minds? Where is the one who would challenge the Lord of hosts? And that's the response. Silence. No one can answer. That's the picture here. Now, this is not new. We see this all over Scripture. God does this all the time. Job 41.1, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Isaiah 41.26, Who declared it from the beginning? Lamentations 3.35, Who has spoken and it came to pass? We might call these uh, God's inquisitive protests. He's calling on all creation to prove something. Questions from God to men to provide a single instance in which someone has done what only God can do. Bring them forward. You you can imagine Goliath there before the children of Israel. Bring them out. What do you have? What do you have to offer? And they all trembled with fear. This is what God is doing. There's no one to answer Him. And the point of all of these types of of protests is to show the singularity of God. That He alone has done these things. That there is no other. And that if men would simply admit the reality that they know is true, they would recognize how foolish it is. How silly it is for anyone to say, I think I'll step in the ring with this guy. This God. It doesn't make any sense. And that's what he's doing here. He's he's standing alone, holy in his holiness, mighty in his power, exclusive in his activity. He's brought all of the intellect and reasoning of man to nothing in the cross of Christ. And he literally is taunting the human race to bring out its champion. Who do you have? As a matter of fact, put all your minds together if you want. All of you come at once. Bring, bring what you have. And then as we drop our heads in shameful silence, like a little child who's been humiliated by his father, he forces us to reckon with the reality. I almost imagine God would now get really close into our ear and say, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And we have to in our shame say, yes, sir, you have. If we speak at all, Yes, sir, you have. You've confounded all of the human race. That's what's happening in this verse. And it's still true today. We could ask, where are all those scientists who've promised to cure the ills of the the human body? 
Where are the philosophers who've promised that they would cure the ills of, of civilizations? Where are the psychologists who, who have promised that they would figure out all of the inner workings of the human soul and make all men happy and joyful? Where are they at? Has anybody figured out a way to get out of here alive? Not one. Have we seen any society flourish from the dawn of time until now? Not one. Has anybody been able to meet the deepest desires and needs of the human heart? Not one. Line them all up. They can't produce it at all. And so God, in Christ, stands triumphant while all of the schemes of men are rendered powerless. They lie in a puddle before Him. Every man in every generation and every place dies in one of two ways. He either dies empty and alone, without God, or he dies full of joy in Christ. But either way, both of those men, if they were honest, will testify on their deathbed that all of the wisdom of the world is foolishness. It had nothing to offer. The man who dies alone, he says, I'm dying. Everything I ever tried, everything I ever attempted... It brought me nothing. And now as I die, I'll leave it all here. The man who dies in Christ, he says, all the world had to give was nothing. And so now I go to Him who is everything. But they all bear witness to this truth. The wisdom of the world is nothing. It has nothing to offer. And I think you can testify to that in, in your own heart. The older that you get, the more you're able to see that it is true. Nothing that this world promises ever provides on the promise. None of man's ideas, none of man's inventions, nothing earthly will ever meet the needs of the human soul. Now, everything that the world advertises, they advertise it as the complete opposite. Everything that they have, they put forth as the thing that's going to take you to the next level. This thing will take you to next level health. This will be next level happiness. This will take you to the next level of style and fashion. This thing will really make you wealthy and rich. And even if you're one of the, the, the tiny percentage of people who actually get to try all of these things and obtain the highest levels that the human race can achieve, even in that they're not satisfied. This is why we find celebrities overdose or with bullets in their brains. They had everything and they found out it will not satisfy. It will not please you. And I hope you younger ones will listen to the older saints who've tested the waters of man's wisdom. And they will tell you with full sincerity, it's, it's, not, it's not hyperbole when we say it will fail you. It will not please you. It's never enough. It won't do it. Whatever you think it's going to do, it won't do it. Your job won't do it. Your degree won't do it. Your career won't do it. Your wife won't do it. Your husband won't do it. Your children won't do it. None of it will satisfy in any ultimate sense. Even the greatest gifts of God that most of us would consider in our, in our immediate family members, there are hard times. And we look forward to the day when those hard times aren't like that. We're looking out in the church of God. We have an immense blessings, but there are struggles, there are trials. We, we know it, it can't be like this for eternity. This cannot ultimately satisfy. It'll never be enough. I hope that everyone in this room will be able to lay on your deathbed with... I, I imagine maybe even a little bit of a cynical smile and look up around those who are near you and say, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Because I'm leaving happier than I've ever been. Leaving everything behind happier than I've ever been. That, that is the way a Christian dies. That's God's protest. Bring them forward. They can't provide. They can't do. God has made it all foolish. And then number three, we see God's purpose. God's purpose in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
Now, there are basically two parts to this statement on the purpose of God. There's God's purpose in excluding human wisdom and God's purpose in saving men through the foolishness of preaching. So first, the purpose of God in excluding human wisdom. For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Two facts we can glean from that phrase. The first one is, the world did not know God through wisdom. That's a truth that's asserted here. Or we we could say that the world, by its own wisdom, did not, cannot, will not know God. Now we know that there is a knowledge of God that is common to all men. Romans 1. It's clearly displayed in what has been made. But here we're talking about that knowledge of God that Jesus mentions in John 17. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God. That experiential, saving knowledge of God, that cannot be obtained through unassisted human wisdom. That's what he's saying. The world did not know God through wisdom. And then the the second thing we can glean from this statement is that that fact was in the wisdom of God or according to the wisdom of God. That is, the eternal God in ordering all the affairs of human history and salvation, ordained in His infinite wisdom that it would be this way. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, the whole manner of saving men, which excludes human wisdom, was all a part of God's eternal purpose. God determined that it would not be man's wisdom that brought him to God. Or we could say, human wisdom won't bring men to God, and God made it that way. That was God's purpose, God's plan. All of these ways that men contrive in order to try to advance themselves, promote themselves, try to, if not after life, even in this life, try to obtain some sort of glorious end or, or paradise or nirvana or whatever it is in their mind they think they're after, They they try to contrive all of these plans. God says, I've already determined that's that's not going to work. That's not going to do it. None of them will work, and it's by design. The purpose of God in excluding human wisdom. And then we see the purpose of God in saving men through the foolishness of preaching. We, We might ask, why did God make it this way? Well, the answer is because it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Or, God did it this way because it pleased Him to save men using another means. And the other means is the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. As we've seen before, it pleased God to save sinners through preaching because this is the way that removes man from the center and places God at the center. All all the glory comes back to God. God remains at the center where He belongs. The wisdom of the world, which God destroyed or promised to destroy and thwart, says one commentator, is a wisdom that leaves God out of account and is man-centered. Well, God says, well, I'll just thwart that. I'll save men by a way that leaves man out completely. As a matter of fact, they'll actually consider it foolish until the day of my power. And then all of a sudden, their thinking will change. I will do that. This glorifies God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach or the thing preached, dealing specifically with the content of the preaching, which we've seen is foolishness to lost men, the message of the cross. But it is the message of the cross which is at the center of all Christian preaching. This is the method God has chosen. And as we noted last Lord's Day, the the fact that Christianity has endured until now, while earthly kingdoms rise and fall is only attributable to the power of God. The fact that the the kingdom of Christ is still advancing in the world, growing all the time in the world, very often we judge by human standards, not by God's standards. Christ's kingdom is growing. The gospel is going forward. There are more converts now than there have ever been in the history of the world. There's never going to be any less. 
God's always adding. It's always growing. It's all a testimony to the fact that God's wisdom prevails over the wisdom of men. This pleased God. This is what He wanted to do. He wanted to save people in a way that brought Him glory and not man glory. He says, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And here again we we close with the great contrast. Man's wisdom or faith. God does not save the worldly wise. He saves those who believe. And these two are as opposed to each other as faith and works. Man's wisdom and faith. Man's wisdom looks inward to himself. Faith looks outward to God in Christ. Man's wisdom exalts man. Faith debases man. When a man is using his own wisdom, he walks with his head high. In faith, a man walks with his head low. Man's wisdom contrives ever-changing methods. Faith receives the unchanging Christ. Just reaches out and takes hold of Him. God is pleased to save men in a way that brings man and all his supposed wisdom to nothing. Actually, less than nothing. Man's wisdom is less than zero. It's negative. Man, man, operating on your own wisdom, you're a loser. You've lost. Because man's wisdom militates against God, as we've seen. God saves sinners by hanging His Son on a Roman cross, laying our iniquities upon Him, crushing Him as if He were us, and then telling us to look at Him with faith and live forever. And if you bring anything, if you bring any of your own wisdom, you bring any of your own works, you bring any of your own merit, if you bring any of your own ideas or your creativity, your own plans or schemes, and even if it's just a flavor, you just want to flavor this with a little bit of yourself, God says, you have disqualified yourself from my saving influences. You have rejected my Son. God put forth His Son as the all-encompassing salvation. If you bring something, what you're saying is, I don't see Him as all-encompassing. And you disqualify yourself. God says you must come. If you bring something, you get nothing. If you bring nothing, you get everything. That's faith. Bring nothing to Him. That's faith. And that's the difference. God promised that it would be this way. And God offers His protest, forcing us to reckon with this reality. Because in God's purpose, He has chosen to save sinners through the crucified God-man, through the death of Jesus Christ. And three days later, He rose from the dead. His days were prolonged. And now He sees His offspring being gathered in from among the nations through the foolishness of preaching. This is God's purpose, God's plan. Let's pray.